Aha! Well, I think, and I might be wrong, but I reckon that um, that we're live. And I can, for once I'm paying attention, and I can see, not only am I on time-ish, uh, but I can see lines in front of me, which means that sound is travelling through the internet of pipes and reaching your ears. Um, hello everyone, good evening. It's, it's Rail Matter. Um, hello, hello, hello. Uh, let's, let's, let's go on with it, shall we? Um, oh, what's, what is, what is going on? Uh, <laughs> episode 160, it's, uh, we are looking at the reshaping of Britain's railways, or, sorry, the reshaping of British railways, um, at 60, because last week was the 60th anniversary week of, um, of the Beaching Report, the original and best, um, and I thought we'd have a look at the real legacy of that document, which, so, um, uh, yes, I can... Um, I can indeed, uh, well, we're going to say stuff, aren't we? We're going to say stuff, stuff. So, beaching at, uh, or reshaping at 60 for episode 160. But first, we must do the news. Uh, the first bit of news is, uh, bridge fall down. Yes, um, this is a, uh, bridge on the main line towards, uh, kind of around in Oxford area. Um, and, uh, various bits of this bridge are, well, it's basically this bridge is literally collapsing into the river. Um, and is it Newnham? I can't exactly remember where it is. Anyway, it's a bridge that is falling down. Um, and this is, this is, if you remember last week's episode, we talked about, um, about the problems that we're going to see with, um, control period seven and the way that network rail is funded. Well, I've come up with a bit of a, a little bit of a motto for control period seven, which is defer, decay, delay. Uh, because that's basically what the plan is for this control period. And bridges collapsing into rivers is going to become a regular part of the next five years of the railway network. Um, key priorities emerging at a network level. Um, they're going to present. Uh, so, so these are the five, well, one, two, three, four, five uh, things that are going to, are the tough decisions to prioritize funding available given the wide range of challenges demands on the network. So um, prioritizing critical safety assets, but also means... Um, uh, so protecting renewals for assets with weaker controls, so things like earthworks and drainage. So prioritization of earthworks and drainage versus structures. Um, future railway availability, they're going to protect the minimum signaling uh, program to enable um, development um, to not create an undeliverable bow wave of signaling in CP89. That's the hope. Uh, I yet to see the, the, whether that will happen. But the key issues are these three here. Mitigation, emerging safety, asset performance, and life cycle cost. Um, safety impacts of asset degradation can be mitigated by extra maintenance. This will mean that relationships between faults and impact on train services remains true and can be assessed by linear interpolation. Basically, all that's saying is there's going to be more faults. But, th but even worse than that, asset performance. Where assets have strong controls, target reductions by accepting a loss of non-safe to critical performance. That means more train delays. Um Life cycle cost, except oh, also it means more vegetation growing out of things. Uh, life cycle cost, this is probably the most insidious, is this last one here. This is the alarm bells. Life cycle cost, um, except short term lower cost fixes that will lead to additional costs in later control periods. Baffling. Bridge fall down. Yeah, so there we are. Oh, yeah, I did a slide so you could see those the, that those messages. This 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 presentation that's um, not currently public, but is going to do the rounds publicly fairly soon, I think. Uh, anyway, not good. Um, Content warning, there is going to be a picture of a train crash coming up. Um, description of images from rail crashes. Yeah, the uh, the Forschoten uh, collision, that was a bit of a Belgian pronunciation of a Dutch place name. Yeah, unfortunately, there's so far been one confirmed fatality. I believe the 
the the on track machine the crane operator was killed um what what has happened here this is a really nasty incident uh what's happened here is that the freight train uh, from what what's been reported i'm not reporting anything that isn't there's no speculation this is what's been reported the um there's a freight train a deutsche a db cargo train going uh, that way struck a crane like maybe like here-ish that, that was where it shouldn't have been uh that uh, possibly it was here in any case that train struck the vehicle which then knocked that vehicle into the path of an intercity train which struck it here and uh has then crashed obviously derailed uh it's quite a lot of serious injuries in the train uh the injured driver of the intercity by the way this is why you have crash worthy vehicles because this train having made having struck uh, a crane and then smashed into the ground quite horrendously uh, protected the driver who was able to ask everyone in his train are you okay and made and, and, and actually started asking passengers if they were all right so um yeah pretty horrendous incident uh here um uh yes but it's you know vehicle crashworthiness in action the, the worrying thing is why on earth was there a, a, an open operational railway with a, with a bit of on-track machinery um within vehicle envelopes that's the question that, uh, among many that are going to be asked uh, about this uh passenger train was coming the other direction so the passenger train was coming in the other direction down here freight train was going the other way so there uh, you had two trains sort of um opposing each other the crane was essentially i think knocked into the path of the train coming the other direction um right yes um let's jump back to sunnier views out of this um aircraft window because this tweet from uh, the Department of Transport, which was an incredibly frustrating thing to see, given, uh, you know, carbon. We're pumping more carbon to the atmosphere, so obviously the thing to do is um, half APD. We, we've moaned about this last time, but what was pleasant uh, was to see how much this tweet got ratioed. The fact that the Department of Transport was celebrating this point uh, and then got horrendously ratioed was, was at least in some way gently pleasing. Uh, yeah, people are pointing out in the previous image that uh, two tracks were closed for... Uh, maintenance i should have probably content warning before jumping back to this image anyway yeah so two tracks were closed for maintenance um and uh two tracks were left open running bi-directionally which you can do in modern railway systems anyway sorry yes let me press on um uh yeah in another you know in other other news the resolution foundation has published an interesting report um just explaining just basically saying everything that railnet is all about which is uh, public investment is too low and too volatile, volatile thanks to the Treasury and its fiscal fine-tuning. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Um, Britain's cycle of weak and highly volatile public investment has left the country poorer and is so deeply embedded that a complete overhaul is needed of how we make decisions on critical public investment, according to new research published today by the Resolution Foundation. Um, cutting the Cuts, this is the 34th report of the The Economy 2030 inquiry funded by the Nuffield Foundation, notes that Britain has long been a low-investment nation which has damaged economic growth, and while the majority of investment is made in the private sector, public sector plays a key role accounting for a fifth of total investments in the UK. Uh, Britain is also an international lagger when it comes to public investment, consistently featuring the weakest third of OECD countries. Had the UK levels been at the OECD average over the past two decades, public investment would have been a truly transformational £500 billion higher. Just say that again. £500 billion higher. Not all of that would have gone to transport. A lot of that would have been housing, stock, and uh, health estate stuff, hospitals and such, etc. But this is this is shocking. This is just a, a shock. You know, that's that's an enormous amount of additional uh, investment that had Treasury not been uh, oh, existing, um, that uh, would have seen yeah, would have seen much higher levels of investment across the country. 
Uh, there's a really nice quote from the research director of the Resolution Foundation, James Smith, who says, Britain's record on public transport, uh, sorry, Britain's record on public investment is one of long-term failure. Our investment levels are too low and too volatile as investment plans are announced and then scrapped before they ever get going. As a result, we are left with overwhelmed hospitals, often terrible public transport and a chronic shortage of housing. We need to completely reset our approach to public investment, rewriting the UK's fiscal framework to remove the strong incentive for the Treasury to cut public investment when bad news turns up and moving decisions about the quantity of public investment to Parliament from the Treasury. The UK is a low investment nation. Too often we are living off our past rather than investing in our future. Turning that around means big changes to how public investment decisions are made and stuck to. Ah, that's what I've been saying for a very long time. There we go. Anyway, abolish the treasury. Uh, well, the reason I put this in is because it's continuing mainstreaming of my abolish the treasury thesis. We had Stephen Westlake on talking about it. Um, uh, okay, they're all uh, horrifying people, but we did have Tory leadership uh, kind of uh, candidates talking about abolishing the treasury, and uh, it's being discussed in the mainstream by policymakers and by think tanks now. This is this is going to become core policy, right? Core policy. Uh, anyway, uh, kind of a last bit of news, uh, ghost trains, because the weird ghosts of the, the Class 230 are now operating on the Borderlands route, um, which is strange. So a little hybrid train running. They look very smart. You know, I, I think they're fine as trains. In fact, they're nice. I like them. It's just that Viva Rail is gone, so I don't really know how these trains work. I guess TFW just bought them outright. Uh, kind of how all, uh, yeah, pretty much kind of how... All trains should be owned by TFW, by the operator. Anyway, I digress. So, ghost trains, fun times. Yeah, and also, episode 160. Before we get, you know, before we jump into the episode, we should give a shout out to uh, the original Tops Class 160. This is not, there is no Class 160 um, uh, in modern Tops, but in the original form of Tops, there was this thing, the Class 160, which I think later became like the Class 104 or something. Uh, it's a little DMU. It's a modernization era relevant to this episode, a modernization era DMU that ran uh, until 1990 something still, I think, in London. Possibly 1994, which is bonkers. But anyway, it was running until 19, in, into the 1990s in in and around Greater Manchester and other places, which is uh, absolutely baffling. It's replaced by sprinters. Anyway, episode 160. Everyone, welcome to tonight's Rail Matter. Yes, it's a beaching episode. And I know we've done two previous beaching episodes. This is beaching three. We did episode uh, 12 was uh, beaching with Dr. DT. Um, episode 78 was uh, two beaching, two furious, uh, a page turn through the first beaching report, as you remember, um, where we kind of went through and looked at bits of it uh, in some level of detail. It's kind of, but you know, that, that then led kind of into the, 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 the piece that I published recently on, on Medium. Um, which I need to add into... Have I actually added it in the description of the episode? I think I have the description of the episode. So if you want a detailed piece to read, then read through that. But we kind of kind of pick through some of my piece for rail on that, um, which is... Where is it? Somewhere. It might even be within arms reach. It's not within arms reach. Anyway, um, that piece... Uh, uh, it, it should be interesting reading, but we're going to pick out some of the stuff and kind of uh, pick on key themes through that with, with the aid of visuals and my face. Um, uh, so, yeah, uh, also... 
Uh, firstly, let's go. Let's go big face and say hello. Hello, everyone. Uh, to to answer to respond to some things here, Barry Jones. Nope, you're wrong. Modernization plan was not a failure, uh, and that's a future episode for sure. But um, we'll get there. Um, Eleanor uh, Levantine asks, uh, have I mentioned the new DLR stock on Rail yet? I think we have. I think I mentioned it in a previous news episode. Um, if not, we need to pick it up and have a look, don't we? But there's also new um, Tiny Metro stock, that we've, 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 which we definitely have mentioned, which makes me think I have, we have mentioned the DLR stock. Might have been in a past news episode. Uh, what else? Stuff here. Oh, uh, the, the, the 230 failed in service, I think, um, on its first day. So really going well. They're, they have, the, the TFW, uh, let's just say their relationship with Viva Rail before its demise was not rosy. But I have multiple fun things for this because look, look at this. So hello, I'm in the, I'm up here, and then now if I press here, look, I'm over here. What's this? It's my hand because before me we have got two. Look, this is it. These are the actual. I have no idea. Look, look, it is. I've not got used to these. The actual. It came in two parts. You see, this is a copy. It's an original copy of the Beaching Report. I've been very. You, you might have noticed I have it behind me on the shelf. Well, it's not there on the shelf anymore. That's why I went for Big Face and I forgot. There's a gap. There's just a poster for the Cambrian line behind me. Uh, because I have brought the reshaping British Railways here into my hand so that we can look at it. Um, and we have desk cam to pretend. We have desk cam. Look, so you can see, look, it's the Wacom. Uh, you can see the, my microphone, the pencil. Uh, and you can see we definitely need to abolish the treasury mug there as well. Anyway, new angle. I, I, I don't know what my plans are these, other than like uh, to have things like a book here. Look, we can have a book so we can do things like uh, if I zoom in a bit better on it, uh, let's do that. If, basically, if I zoom in on it and rotate the camera a bit, I can do over my shoulder like images pickups um the as with all of these documents um the the reshaping of british railways is available in um uh, is available on the railways archive so go to the railways archive to download it but you can you can absolutely download it yes um i'm not going to say much more about what's wrong with the um viaduct near um near oxford uh so uh, because there's there's a lot wrong with it and a lot that i know that i probably shouldn't say but um it's a mess <laughs> anyway right let us crack on so, we're gonna, I'm just going to get started. We're going to talk about the context. We're going to start with some context that I think is important that gets forgotten. Then we're going to go into some legacy stuff. So we'll start with some context. We'll go through some legacy. And we're going to start by talking, well, very briefly, kind of running through the kind of the history of what led to reshaping. So we start with um, this, the Railways Act 1921, which created the grouped railway. It was very much marked the end. And Barry, you can correct me on some of this stuff, I'm sure. Um, uh Deirdre's saying all the same gadgets used when teaching online. Well, indeed. Uh, desk cam is struggling with focus. I don't think it's got quite the same level of lighting um, that's that's the issue. I don't have like a down... Actually, you know what? Let's let's just try desk cam here. If I do this, that probably will might help. Uh, might help with focus. I don't know. Who knows? It's my hands. What What's here? Not, not, not very exciting, is it? Anyway, um, I digress. So, for the audio-only people, this isn't helpful for you, is it? Anyway... Uh, yeah, Railways Act 1921 uh, created the grouped uh, railways, the four grouped railways. Well, I mean, also, there, there wasn't just four. It's more complicated than that. But by and large, it was a group. The, the, the big four became a thing. Um, this was kind of very much the demise of laissez-faire uh, railway management. Uh, government kind of had much heavier uh, involvement from this point onwards. Um, and uh, and it kind of... this The legacy of this lasted far longer than 
I mean, the legacy continues. The legacy of, of grouping continues to cause brain rot among uh, conservative Secretary of States for Transport. So very much a long-lived legacy. But, you know, okay, so we had grouping, which which smooshed things into large areas, which I don't think is, is a... I, I think large... I don't think it's the right model. I don't think uh, I don't think grouping is the right model. I don't think like for example having like big. I don't think the Japanese model is the right one for for, for Britain's railways, as previously discussed. We talked about structure in previous episodes. And then we got to 1947, or rather 1948, when it was um, the commencement was of the Transport Act 1947, which created a load of things, including the British Transport Commission. The British Transport Commission. Um, uh, had within it uh, a number of executives. The railway executive was the one in charge of what became known as British Railways. Uh, but we had nationalisation at this point. Nationalisation was not um, particularly successful at the start either. In fact, it, you know there there were there were lots of things that weren't particularly successful. It was the right thing to do at the time. There, there was you know the 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 big four just well as private entities, the big four railing. And I at the time you wouldn't have successfully. You wouldn't have done the thing that we, the nationalizations that we do now, that weirdly are often done by Tories, where they would have just created four PLCs or, or you know, four like arm's length government bodies running the big four. That just wasn't really the approach. You know, you, you, you particularly when you had the thrust of creating the National Health Service, creating kind of big state entities to to solve a load of social problems that were that that were happening in the grip of a of a rapidly modernizing Britain. So, Transport Act 1947 uh, created the nationalized British Railways amongst other things. And then you jump forward to 1955 and you have um, modernisation, modernisation and re-equipment of British Railways, often called a failure, but I, by one pure measure, which was its target, i.e. to get rid of, to, 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 to make sure that British Railways didn't have an operating deficit, it, it did fail. But in terms of kicking British Railways into the modern era and actually providing, you know, you know rolling out AWS massively alter, you know changing the the shape of the fleet um beginning wholesale electrification i don't buy that it was a failure i think it's very pop it's a very popular um trope to say the failure of modernization is why the treasury hasn't trusted us for decades since but i don't believe it's true i i think that actually that mistrust existed right from the start and we'll kind of pick through that with a bit of timeline stuff but i just don't believe that modernization was a failure and, I, and i'll do it I'll, I'll unpick that thesis i may bring dr dt on and we'll have a think about it or, or some other historians perhaps and who maybe uh, have have thoughts on that but i don't believe that modernization was a failure i just think it's a popular easy thing it's an easy myth to say and it doesn't stack up i don't believe it stacks up to reality given that modernization kick-started what to all intents and purposes was a rolling program of electrification for a, for a couple of decades um so on its own key target of making the railways pay for themselves because this was still a fixation of, of, of government at the time that the railways would work like that it fairly quickly like within four years which was not long enough for the for it to actually reap any benefits anyway um, and as i point out i believe that the seeds sown by modernization are what led to the Brit british rail becoming quite successful by the time you reach the 70s um it was the it was modernization that had that in combination with reshaping which we'll get there that gave us the the, the the successful railways. You know, measuring it four years afterwards was just not going to, that was never going to be successful because the reality is it wasn't about the railways. It was about the fact that the, there was just an enormous shift in modal share. You know, the, the, the way that people and things are moving around, that thrust of the private car and, 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 and private goods vehicles that, that were pushing. Uh, and again, as Dr. DT says a lot, um, that's not a, it wasn't a new thing. Road transport had been taking, um, 
goods and you know they've been pulling revenue off the railways for a very long time but anyway uh, two white papers uh, were published uh, one of them was the 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 catchily uh, named uh, reappraisal of the plan for the modernization and recruitment of british railways which was um uh, yeah a document kind of essentially commissioned by the, the the btc the british transport commission looking at uh, commissioned by the commission yes well i suppose it was uh, looking at and, and kind of perhaps the kind of reevaluating and, and and pulling back on some of the commitments made in in the original modernization plan basically because they as they started actually working out the plan they realized that it was it was going to be complex and time consuming that you know that scale of work had just not been done before britain did not start major major levels of, of mainline electrification in the interwar years in the same way that the rest of europe did um, and then following that, so that was in July 1959. In December 1960, already there was a feeling of right. It's, the the BTC is not working. It was partly political because there was a feeling that the BTC was a was a was a creation of labour. So there was a, a feeling that it wasn't commercially you know streamlined enough. And there was they wanted to create boards and have it like a big company. So there was a a a, a, reor- a proposal for the reorganisation of of the nationalised transport undertakings, which set the scene for. Uh, the 1962 Railways Act, but we'll get there momentarily. One of the other things that I mean, one of the things that was spot on within the, com- the complaints about the BTC was that it was, um, it failed to integrate across transport modes, and actually quite a lot of the reason for uh, that failure is related to the Railways Act. Um, uh, you know, is related to 1921 Railways Act and 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 grouping because the grouping me- management was so entrenched. As we talked about the rail network, and whenever it was like you know, like six, seven episodes ago, um, the rail network was seen as as you know, very much seen as a continuation of the 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 individ- the, the big four railway companies, and that was very much the detriment of, of of how to run the railway system. And and indeed, you know, railways were run as railways, and there was no integration. There was no intention of integrating across different modes. Uh, you know, there were no there was no had been no thrust by the Labour government or or Conservative governments to create any sort of nationalised substantially nationalized bus operations um to compete with the big private bus uh, companies which were kind of engorging at this point those bus groupings were getting quite big anyway um so there are two little interesting uh, progress reports published um kind of as a bit of a pamphlet for the public uh, but but really it was a pitch to government to say look look modernization is a thing and it's happening um uh one was in may 61 and one was in may 62 and there's quite a stark difference between the two the language changes quite substantially between them as you can see that the, the british railways basically these documents talking to government ministers civil servants spads treasury uh we've seen this all before the language changes and there's a particular paragraph in the second one the may 62 one that i think is worth uh reading out in creating a new railway system to suit an age in which the private car and motorcycle the goods lorry and aircraft have emerged as formidable competitors some pruning is inevitable the process is not simply one of retrenchment the new railway must be the right size and shape to meet the challenge and to meet the new demands of industry uh yeah there we go that's um modernization voice uh, yeah, that, that's a paragraph that's in the, the kind of the opening spiel within that that second progress report. So that's like tacitly discussing the the the, the fact that we have um, you know a tacit discussion of um, actually reducing the size of the railway network, and and it wasn't you know the the, the first. So so if I if we jump back a couple actually the the. The first of these two white papers, this one, which I'm about to circle here, this one here, this was the first white paper. So July 59 was the first time that there was a a proper acknowledgement of um, talking about the future size of the railway system. An acknowledgement that, a, a, right, a correct and absolutely spot on acknowledgement that the railway network was a mess, too big, 
made very little sense, and so on. And so this started reaching the zeitgeist, and, and so we had this paragraph, and then um, the white paper, plus some of this sort of zeitgeist stuff, um, created the Transport Act 1962. Now, the Transport Act 1962 enabled quite a few things, um, yeah, one of which... Yeah, well, one of which was was sort of um, creating new powers to, to to enable rail services to be rapidly altered or ended. That was one. It was getting rid of the common carriage, which is a, a positive thing. Getting rid of the need for the railways to just sort of, uh, yeah, the 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 the, the, cartel, the government cartel of rates making railways very deeply uncompetitive compared to you know basically having to carry loads of stupid goods traffic that made no sense for railways to ever carry. Some of that stuff, which which will come up again in reshaping. Um, but but it, it, it so it, it it swept away the British Transport Commission, it created the British Railways Board, um, it created a load of other boards. You know they were kind of the you know, the London Board, the the Docks Board, the British Waterways Board. It created create a load of boards because we're going to have company. We're going to make government like companies, and so a company has to have a board, doesn't it? So um, such such it is. So from uh, the Transport Act, nineteen sixty two we get pretty quickly to the reshaping of British Railways. So the the, the, the Transport Act came, um, you know, before the Transport Act was actually commenced. Beaching was on board. Uh, you notice I'm not talking much about beaching here because this episode is a beaching episode, but actually it's not a beaching episode. It's a reshaping episode. I, I teased you and got you all. Um, if I jump back, the, the reorganisation um, paper kind of set the scene in readiness for and basically got beaching to start, uh, you know, got the British Railways... Uh, what was the railway executive, what became the British Railways Board, to start enacting the work that would form reshaping, you know, that would form these documents, uh, of which uh, I'm looking at them both in front of me here. Um, so, the thing that I do want to talk about briefly, which is which is key, is timelines, because reshaping should not be seen as a... Um, it, it should not be seen as the demise of modernisation and the rise of... Uh, of of uh, reshaping British Railways. No. So, modernisation, the timeline of modernisation here. Uh, modernisation ran, and, and others might disagree. For me, I think that modernisation ran from about, ni- well, fr- ran from 1955 when the paper was published through to 1968. Actually, was it December 19- was it December 54 that it was published? Anyway, uh, 55 is when it kicked off. It ran through to at least 1968. Um, uh, because, you know, Euston Station, I mean, for me, I'm saying that because Euston Station uh, you know the construction of Euston Station didn't complete until uh, until 1968, and you could argue that the continuation of that actually, anyway, we'll we'll get to argue. within that reshaping was a, a a short breeze. Reshaping was published in 1963, and I would say that you, some people say the reshaping era ended in 1970. I would say that reshaping as an era ended with the departure of of Dr. Richard Beeching in 1965. <laughs> So reshaping was a very short two, you know, two years, a very short-lived era. Modernization absolutely spanned over that. And as I say, arguably, you could push modernization out to the the the, the completion of electrification into into Glasgow. Um, so uh, yeah, I would say that modernization, you know, reshaping should be seen as as an attempt at rebranding. But but really, it, it was tackling quite a narrow remit by comparison to to the other stuff going on. So that's my view of um, of how these things fit together. So, let us talk, let's briefly talk about um, finances, because 
I, I talk a bit about finances within the um, within my, my my piece that you can read on Medium. That's that's well worth reading. I, I don't know why I'm plugging that like the the Michael Spicer podcast parody, but uh, yeah, you can read my piece on Medium, um, uh, sponsored by uh, Dexler Oil Company Limited. No, I, I, I'm not sponsored by anyone. I'm sponsored by you, actually. All the patron people. Hello, patron people. You are my sponsors. Anyway, financial context. This is the key quote, right? From uh, from reshaping, uh, and, and it's in you know it's in here. I can I can find it. It's, it's 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 this this i mean let's let's just let's go to desk let's get desk cam up here's desk cam uh so here's here it is and you can find um this quote uh quite quite early on uh and it is here yeah so from basically uh in this this section and this section here uh, da, 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 da. Basically, I put the quote on screen because the quote is the important one. Because look at this, this this quote: one third of the route mileage carries only one percent of the total passenger miles. Similarly, one third of the mileage carries only one percent of the freight ton miles. So that's basically one third of the network that you could basically call redundant. And 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 okay, there might be strategic reasons why they why that isn't a direct translation. But but I don't think it's unreasonable to basically say that is not an efficient system. And it's true that basically a huge number, any there, there's a huge amount of goods going from little stations to little stations. That okay, now that we now with the benefit of technology, some of that might be quite a good idea. And and, and yes, with the strategy, you'd do that. But at the time, they didn't have the ability to easily track parcels, parcels and packages. Um, those things were kind of you had to. What are now most car parks and railway stations were were a little goods yard that that like a sheep, two boxes with honey in them. And 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 a fridge would get loaded into a, a little open wagon and then and then shunted onto a train that would bugger off somewhere. You know that's not an efficient way to run a railway. Um, so you know there that's a huge amount of network that was just not being used efficiently. So Gareth has just asked me to define redundant. Let's just put it this way: it was not being used efficiently. So for better or worse, either they needed to use those lines more efficiently or they needed to be chopped. That's that's what the logic was. And, and fine, fine. Let's look at the specifics of finances. So within um, reshaping, there's this table. I'm going to compare this table, which goes through the, the, the receipts of the railway. So that's uh, the income of the railway and then the expenses of the railway. Uh, we're going to compare that to the, um, the modern numbers. You know, we have the modern numbers here. You know, we can look at pretty much the same thing out, you know, for the modern era. We're going to look at uh, 2020, 2021, because that's the last complete year with, with data in it. Um, this year is going to be a weird year because of COVID. But I thought, I'll just take the I was going to take a pre-COVID year. But actually, you know what? Maybe I'll do the comparison with the pre-COVID year. But for now, let's do the current year to make to make an interesting comparison. Um, and this allows us to pull all the numbers together and compare 1961, which is the year that the data was collected for reshaping, and 2020. Well, it's not 2023, is it, uh, me? It's, uh, it's 2020. It's actually 2021, because that's the year that the data is in. So that's quite nice, because it gives us a 60-year... Yeah, it gives us the 60 years. So, passenger traffic. So, this is the income bit. So, this bit is income, right? This is the income section. Um, passenger traffic. In 1961, passenger traffic made, uh, and this is, I've updated these numbers to 2022 prices, by the way. So, these are all contemporary comparable prices. So, we can directly compare numbers. Uh, passenger traffic made 3.5 billion in 1961. In 2021, it only made 2.6 billion. There you are. That's uh, about a billion less uh, revenue from passenger traffic, which is interesting. Um, I wonder, oh, I can definitely go back to the ORR data, by the way, and uh, railway, uh, UK railway financing ORR. 
uh, and have a look and compare uh, this portal here and go into yeah that's the portal I want uh, there we are if I get some nice power bi so let's do this and let's do let's look at 2019 to just see to make a comparison uh, you can see that uh, so that's 10.7 billion income compared to 5.8 billion income so there is a pretty dramatic difference there you can see in the um, in the finances, basically half the revenue. Uh, but it'd be interesting to see what, I'm looking forward to this being updated to see what it is in 22-23. Um, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting. It's not We're not far off. We'll be getting those numbers, hopefully, fairly soon. ORR, please, hurry up. Uh, that'd be uh, interesting. Anyway, let's continue looking at these numbers. So, uh, 2021, uh, only 2.6 billion. Freight traffic, so 7 billion, nearly 7 billion quid in 1961 from freight. Whereas, um, we're only looking at... Um, uh 0.8 billion in uh it basically today so that's 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 a six billion quid drop that's an enormous drop in in freight receipts uh, and, and and we'll talk a little bit about where that cash is coming from uh, and then the overall other income there's a look that that's kind of a different series series of different incomes there that kind of not hugely comparable to be honest uh it's a bit difficult to compare these but anyway the, the other income basically 0.2 billion in you know, 200 million in, in 1961 and 500 million in, in 2021 so it's kind of comparable so the total income in 1961 was was nearly 11 billion in 90, uh, compared to today where it was or a year ago when it was 4 billion so that's quite a dramatic difference in income um you'd argue that we're looking at quite a successful railway in 1961 um so if we go to, to the expenses so the incomes uh fine uh, we've got ten points. You know, we, we can compare those incomes. The, the, the expenses now. Let's look at train operations and maintenance. Nineteen sixty one. It cost five point six billion to operate and maintain the trains. Today, nearly eleven billion. Roscoe's. Um, let's have a look at uh, infrastructure maintenance and signalling. So this is kind of ish network rails budget. Uh, in nineteen sixty one, that was two point five billion. Today, ten billion. So quite a sizable uh, increase in costs of, of looking after the asset there. Um, other overall um, expenses, well, there were quite a lot sizable greater other expenses on the the, 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 the former railway, whereas now much smaller. I would, I, I'm guessing those other expenses are, are all the different things like ferries, hotels, other bits and pieces that had to be looked after, whereas we don't have much much of that. Um, left on the railway now. It's only $1.2 billion. Um, but if we compare the expenses, we have nearly twice as expensive a railway to operate nowadays compared to compared to the past 12.6 billion in 1961 compared to 22 billion in 2021 and the net result of that is that in 1961 um what i think was at the time about 80 90 million uh deficit that required government funding um 1961 in, in today prices that's that's 1.9 billion um whereas today's deficit is 17.6 billion <laughs> so it's interesting, isn't it? I wonder what might have happened if we just sort of said that 1.9 billion quid operating deficit was fine uh, and and didn't necessarily go for swing cuts and thought about how to utilise the existing network better. Uh, it's a counterfactual that's basically impossible to prove. Um, Adam Evans, the reduction in purchasing power parity compared to 1961. Uh, yes, that's, that is true. This isn't just inflation, by the way. Um, uh, uh, people asking where ferry income would fit in all this. It's a good question. I think other uh, is where that income would sit. Um, uh, yeah, good, good question. Uh, yeah, making more stuff in the UK 
actually makes things cheaper. Yes, true. We don't make as many things, so everything's more expensive. Anyway, hopefully that's an interesting slide. I'll clear my red lines. Uh, is that interesting? I, I thought that was quite an interesting little observation to look at. Um, so that, that's, I'm just going to put that out there. I'm not going to necessarily comment on, because we can talk about that for hours and hours, not necessarily, we have pulled questions about that to the end. Uh, I thought that was an interesting slide for comparison, right? Uh, the operational legacy. Let's think about the operational legacy. So we're going to start by one of the tables that's in uh, that's in reshaping, uh, and it's this. It actually looks like uh, let's get desk cam back up. It's it's the, oh, the look, these are the pages that everyone hates. These are the pages with all the closed stations. No, we're going to jump to the. Doo -doo -doo -doo. It's quite early on. Doo -doo 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 -doo. Uh, yeah, here we are. Revenue and associated costs by main traffic for British Railways. So it's this bit here. Uh, there we are. Revenue and associated costs. Table one, as it is. Um, and uh, that... Let's let's go. I'm getting used to this extra cam, as you can tell. For all the only people, I'm so sorry. <sighs> yes, so um, this this is a table that I kind of looks at the, the revenue after direct costs uh, and then the revenue after all costs for different types of service. And I've ordered them in the from most... Uh, revenue generating after all costs to least revenue generating after all costs and it's interesting so um a type of uh part of traffic that simply doesn't exist anymore parcels and mail um generate this is in there this is in 1961 um uh pennies by the way i haven't updated these but it generates you know that generated nearly nearly seven million quid um uh, after costs which is not bad Coal, then, was the other thing that, that won big. So coal generated an enormous amount. Now, if you look at the revenue after direct costs, you see that, that other things were profitable. Suburban uh, trains were, were profitable after direct costs. Um, Pat, uh, express services, long-distance services were, were profitable. And then minerals, uh, coal, and parcels, uh, all of those generating um, decent revenue after direct costs only. But if you look at the revenue after all costs, you see that, Quite rapidly, these things start becoming loss making, um, which is quite interesting, really. Uh, this is this is this is accounting for all of the, and, and you can go into the download the PDF and have a look at the specifics. But it's just interesting to compare the the fact that the only things that were actually overall making cash for British Railways were um, parcels and mail and freight and uh, you know and coal freight, which is interesting. Mm. We don't have any parcels and and, and mail uh, freight anymore. Anyway. So let's talk about let's let's actually go in and talk about the the legacy, the infrastructure legacy, and the and the, sorry the operational legacy rather, um, of of what of what reshaping proposed. Now, and I want to talk first about passenger services. I've got this picture up as a bit of a prompt. the The sort of stuff that I want to talk about here is thinking about think about the fact that well, firstly. This the section of the of the report, um, the kind of as you go through the, the, the kind of there's a few chapters that kind of exploring different traffic types in, in quite a lot of detail, um, and it kind of parallels those with the maps, which um, which I can, which we can show you if I go for desk cam. So that's the report document. But if I if I show you the, the kind of the map section, this is beautiful. So if we open this, these maps are the look at this. This is the, these are the maps, and they're all individually printed sheets. Uh, density of freight traffic, density of, of passenger traffic. These open out. These look at these. These open out into beautiful little sort of sections. Which is very nice. Uh, here we go. We've got some nice paper sand pieces. Well, there, there you are. There is. I don't. Know, there is the map. Looking, looking rather snazzy. Um, and you can see the density. There we go. So you can see all the density going into London. You can actually see the density in and around Manchester briefly. There's a big chunk of density. And uh, Glasgow probably has, yeah, a decent bit of density in and around Glasgow and Edinburgh as well, which is interesting because 
Uh, so we're going to talk about some of the things that, that, that Beeching's analysis got right and got wrong now that we've got the benefit of hindsight. Um, I'm going to leave those, those out for now because I don't want to rip pages uh, while not constrained. Uh, that's my giant face. You don't want that. So <sighs> different types of service. Let's start with the, 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 the well-argued case that Beeching makes for, for intercity services. You know, he, he calls these fast and semi-fast services. And he basically says, look, the luxury train of the future, the, the new blue pool, Pullman, should be seen as the model of the future. Um, remember at this point, this was the early, early 1960s. Uh, West Coast electrification was not fully operating at this point. Um, it's worth also pointing out, and this is a failure that I'll refer to later, Beeching is entirely traction agnostic, which is a failing that propagates to this day through upper level railway civil servants and 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 so on the idea of, of the fact that the electric railway is not should not be the default so the fact that blue pullman was, was talked about as the luxury train in the future probably didn't help with um people telling hst creators to get lost uh, and actually we, we should have just electrified everything but anyway uh, yeah he does talk a bit about you know kind of multiple major terminal stations being a problem um which would be true if the thing that I'm going to talk about in a minute wasn't the case, which is related to suburban services. We'll get there. But um, generally, in city, good. More of that. Very, very good. Um, so then the next type of, of, of service that, that Beechin talked about was stopping services. And stopping services, yeah. So the stopping services, which we know are critical lifelines for, for lots of, of rural and indeed suburban areas, uh, also feed traffic onto the mainline network, you know, the intercity network. These are these were not remotely profitable, and, and Beeching's attitude to them was get rid of all of them. Um, so yes, he, he kind of has kind of some fairly extensive deliberations on this, but essentially he just says get rid of them all. They're better served by buses. Now, if you have an integrated bus system integrated into the railways, I don't necessarily disagree with some of that. If you'd had a proper integrated look at freight and, and passenger uh, and had a, a view to the future, the conclusions might have been different. But bearing in mind that there is a station for basically every 2.5 miles on the network on average, it's a huge number of stations. And that's, you know, the stations, those stations were built to compete with bus stops and in lots of cases to compete with tram stops. So there were lots of lots of stations that did not need to exist in the way that they did. So it's there's just an enormous... Um, uh, an enormous amount of redundant infrastructure, the, the infrastructure that was just hopelessly underutilized. And, and, and I want to see efficient use of resources, and buses are the way to serve an awful lot of markets that these rail that these railways served, um, which would be fine if you kept those services integrated and nationalized. Hmm. Uh, I mean, at this point, of course, they weren't nationalised, but they, there was some minimum level of service provision at this point because buses were pretty heavily regulated. Hmm. Uh, foreshadowing. Anyway, so stopping passenger services obliterated. But I don't think that's the most insidious mistake that Beeching made. In fact, I think the most insidious mistake that Beeching made was about suburban services. And I, and I talk about this in my piece. The fact that Beeching quite specifically says... Firstly, he gets upset at the low fares uh, in London, uh, which which results in an inability to justify investment in capacity enhancement. That changes then. You get the season ticket, and, and they start pricing quite substantially for, um, uh, for, you know, the the the, the uh, cost. Was this supposed? To, did I forget to set the correct time for? Oh, no, it's supposed to seven p.m. It's just that YouTube's being really weird with them. Um, the times that it's showing me on my screens have gone really weird. Anyway, sorry. Um, yeah, suburban services. 
it, within London, uh, you suggest things like, you know, stagger working hours and, and disperse employment to the edge of the city. Uh, like this was a super hot topic. London, London congestion was a super hot topic in the 60s. You know, 1965, I think there was a big London transport, you know, rail, um, London rail study was published and all sorts of things going on. You know, Crossrail was suggested and that, so on and so forth. Um, so, so the suburban transport within London, fine. And, and that kind of remained a success because you had lots of du- line duplication you had lo- to a to a reasonable extent long distance lines and suburban lines were kind of separate this is where Beeching makes his biggest blunder to my mind which is he c- is completely disparaging about suburban services outside the capital um he considers that that you know he basically says like those cities he doesn't think about the fact that those cities can and should grow he just considers london he considers london and then everything else is towns um which is partly from his uh, upbringing i dare say uh there's a failure to future proof the potential for suburban services to grow um they're absolutely limited in favor of, of, of his wonderful long distance services as you know as is a problem that we've always talked about this 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 problem existed before beaching but he really concentrated the problem um, by the proposers for closures so by closing and, and getting rid of that duplication in, in and around city areas manchester is a good example of lots of duplication that was removed that shouldn't be bradford is, is another example where there are lots of duplicated lines that could have provided long distance um segregation the the removal of those lines the the, the decimation of potential for suburban uh, rail e- expansion in those cities and in others you know like um like the 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 hampshire uh, conurbation uh, that was just that's a huge shortcoming and, and will have had a much more insidious impact on passenger numbers than the rural railway closures, I'm sorry to say. You know, Britain's population was was, was urbanising, not ruralising. So the, the, the loss of rural stations absolutely was the one that caught the headlines, but it was the closure of suburban services, uh, you know, and, and, and even the limitation of potential for future suburban expansion that was really insidious, really, really hit. That, that's, that's by far Beeching's biggest mistake. So, um, well, no, I kind of talked about that. Let's hop to, to another uh, theme, which is um, freight. So there's an awful lot on freight in 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 reshaping. Uh, you know, if I go to if I go back to desk cam and we get the, the the report back up, there's loads and loads of analysis, lots and lots of analysis on different traffic. Um, you know, all these tables here that I know are not focusing very well. Lots of stuff to do with lots of just just enormous amounts. There's lots of nice graphs as well. Let's get the graphs up. There's lots of the, the graphs here. Yeah, lots of these graphs about general merch. Loads of good data on freight. Far more de- detailed analysis on uh, goods than on uh, passenger service, which I think is partly a consequence of Beecher's background. Um, so uh, yeah, that, uh, so uh, so freight. What what was what was successful about freight? Uh, what did he get wrong? What did he get right? Well, actually, I think for the most part, Beecher got freight pretty bob on. Um, Mail and parcel trains, uh, Beeching says, these are great, fine, <laughs> just keep doing that, which, you know, perhaps we still should be. Um, he shows that the heaviest traffic routes for freight um, also happened to be the busiest passenger routes, so he was pleased about that because it made, meant that you could concentrate services onto core trunk routes, more on that later, which is, which is, which is correct. It is good to have a, a core trunk route that does the, both the freight and the passenger services um, uh, up to a point. As, we'll, as as you all know, given discussions about HS2. Um, but the, so going, so, so the kind of like, yes, fine. He talked about changing patterns in coal movement and 
basically initiated the development of um, of what became merry-go-round. So yes, coal is bad now, we know that. But in terms of delivering an incredibly efficient system to power, uh, to, to create, you know, electricity, you know, to generate electricity and to basically drop powdered coal into, you know, on basically non-stop trains that went round and round in circles, merry-go-round trains, non-stop trains, uh, delivering coal from, uh, you know, in Shildon built wagons, uh, delivering coal non-stop to the, the big central generating board power stations in the Air Valley or Erewash Valley or wherever it happens to be. Um, uh, these uh, Trent Valley, sorry, not Erewash Valley, but all the big power sta- coal power stations, those were just delivered by a continuous conveyor belt of trains delivering coal. And that was genius. Um, and you know, just an enormously efficient and profitable way to 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 to, to bring cash into the railway. Um, again, for mineral trains, uh, he didn't actually add very much other than sort of saying um, expanding single commodity trains and and kind of getting rid of mixed commodity services that require marshalling would be a good thing. So just having one type of thing is more effective for these big bulk single commodities. So for things like uh, iron ore or uh, or stone or you know these sorts of things um china clay this sort of stuff make a single commodity which which make, makes good sense to be honest i think that's fine um and this is all about the whole thing the point of, of, of reshaping was saying uh, kind of early on in the document he goes right what are railways good at they're good at um high capacity high density um uh easy to organize loads whether that's passengers or or, or goods and then Understanding what they're good at means that you can pick the types of loads that they're good at and either continue to move those around and make those more efficient or find out where the road is moving them around and take them back from road. That was the that was the kind of the logic of, of reshaping. Um, uh, Gareth, yeah, you're right. It wasn't coal trains. It was a nationalized industry. Um, pay, it was basically NCB paying BR, both being nationalized. Yeah, but remember, that's because... Um, successive governments want to think of all these things as bits of uh, uh, as companies even even uh, that was kind of what allowed them to remain nationalized was the fact they kind of exist as companies until they didn't and were properly privatized Ooh, excuse me so um yeah looking at the kind of there's there's wagon load freight and, and sort of all the stuff that wasn't mineral movements and that's kind of like there are two types. One of them was um, stuff that passed through uh, basically, yeah, two types, siding to siding or siding to dock traffic, which kind of accounted for most tonnage, 71%, and, and provided a pretty positive yield. And we kind of see a lot of that stuff now, and, and not enough of it actually, but we'll see how that transferred a lot into intermodal traffic. And the other traffic, the remaining tonnage was stuff that passed through local goods stations at both or one end of its journey. And that traffic was, it's stuff that Red Star trying to pick up on a bit later with parcels type traffic but actually that is parcels and it's separate that traffic that um 29 percent of tonnage the 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 either at one or both ends went through a local goods station that's just not good for railways uh and you could say yes well you could consolidate this you could consolidate that you could use intermodal to 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 help with some of the traffic but it's just not an efficient use of of um and and in a way the rise of the supermarket helped get rid of some of that traffic as well because a lot of it was to local stores and stuff but getting rid of that was a good thing to make the railway work better um so a lot of it was kind of like um you know that that analysis that beaching did also looked at the road haul goods traffic that could be brought back to rails and intermodal was the result of, of looking at that and so you know the shipping container by this point by the early 60s had already been proven as as the thing that was going to move goods around uh, and make globalization happen at pace 
Um, the, you know, the battles were fought, being fought over standardization of, of what size it would be, not not whether containers were good or bad. Um, Beeching absolutely was tuned into this through his background with ICI and through general his understanding. I think this reflects in his understanding of freight more broadly. He saw an opportunity to expand on this and he pounced on it and very much pushed forwards. I'm not, he's not a saint, by the way. This is just a good, this is one example of a really, uh, of a thing that he absolutely nailed was was the first trial of trial of uh, freightliner services you know the first the first service was uh, on the 15th of november 1965 so a couple of years after pretty much as Be- beaching left the went out the door sadly um but the first revenue earning service would be london glasgow uh, on 15 november 1965 which i presume is this one actually uh is it uh, possibly this this one here uh anyway it's got a plaque on it i don't think they'd have put a plaque on it if it wasn't um the also the boxes look a bit weird anyway this ended up becoming kind of the the very very successful freightliner um uh, type services that that, that that continue to this day intermodal traffic is is absolutely continues to be growth market you know 75 mile an hour intermodal trains running up and down the country massive success you know just absolutely enormous success um uh, yeah very very good so he did get one thing wrong, which was that he believed that inland rather than coastal ports would be the primary source of this traffic. But I suppose he didn't get it wrong. It's just that we have our laissez-faire logic just let that happen. But actually, I think we should have more inland to inland um, intermodal traffic. I think over the Pennines is a good example of that to, to relieve the M62. I think we should be creating more hubs to just get HGVs off motorways. Um, and I, as I said in the in the last mile problem episode... We're going to kind of need to do more of this sort of thing because we're not going to be able to have 40-ton trucks on the road. 44-ton trucks are just not going to work um, for, for hydrogen or diesel. They're not going to function. They're not going to work. Uh, they're going to, they're just, it's not happening. Uh, I know some people said, oh, no, but this one is. No, I don't. I, I really strongly believe the economics are just not going to stack up. Um, uh, I, just, I, I just don't see it working. And, and it, besides, it's more efficient to put that stuff on rail anyway, so we should be. So... Um, the other thing, I and mean, if you go back to the old freight episode we did, this we can explore more of this. There's lots of good stuff we explore in that. Sundry traffic, which ended up like they did make that more efficient. Uh, so we got rid of the kind of loosely common user wagons. We kind of er- eradicate that stuff, but have the kind of the the, the sundry traffic, the wagon load traffic. This, here's a little model of the little 1960s question mark. Yeah, 1960s model of the entrance to the Channel Tunnel there. Um, it's not the end of the story. So there's some stuff that we kind of, I think is worth exploring um, so there's this discussion of uh, reducing staff headcount, as as had already happened, by the way. The staff headcount from nationalisation was 650,000. That reduced to less than 500,000 by 63. That would continue to happen, and an extra staff would, would you know, tens of thousands of extra staff would be reduced. Um, uh, are you? Am I freezing? I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah. Uh, hopefully that's uh, going to come out in the wash. Yeah. So there's so there's kind of so there's there's a general consideration that that, that reshaping would would predict a surface we'll get to that so there's, there's the other factors i want to talk about about the future role of railways um uh he sort of says that um basically the, these other measures he sort of said firstly that other measures of success or value would not have resulted in different outcomes which i'm, I'm inclined to agree with actually so even if you looked at a social value measure of these different railways i think the, the outcome would have been the same actually um because buses if you think of buses as part of the integrated system, they are the right thing to use for a lot of these rural services. They provide a better service because you can you can have braided routes that actually pick up smaller villages with with one route. You know things like that that can be quite clever. Um, but a, a few points, uh, you know, so the coordination of transport was together. Uh, Beeching kind of wrongly concluded that his proposals didn't prejudice the balance of rail versus road versus air. 
Um, I say wrongly because of his views on non-London suburban rail. That was He screwed that up. Um, another thing he talked about is social benefit. So on social benefit, Beeching determines that different measures of value based on social benefit would, wouldn't impact on his proposals, which, I mean, theoretically, that's false, you know, taking the example of rural services feeding into city ones. But history actually judged this point as correct, as we'll talk about momentarily, because Barbara Castle's social railway concept basically made no changes to the post-reshaping uh, map. She didn't really stop any cuts, and indeed she proposed more. So, like, history judges him correct on that point, even if theoretically the social benefit measures would have made different, you know, created different outcomes. And his kind of last uh, thing on future development, um, he kind of, kind of compounded his error on suburban rail by, by kind of thinking about, you know, supposing no great additional urban development outside of London. Um but he did foresee the problems of continued concentration of the economy in London. Just, you know, left hand, right hand there, not, not kind of adding, talking to each other. Uh, he also pointed out that the Channel Tunnel would, would kind of favourably sit on top of his proposals as well. Um, and, and, in, and, and his liner trains, as he rightly and accurately predicts, liner trains, as he called what became freight liner intermodal services, would very neatly use the Channel Tunnel. That would work very, very nicely. Uh, and then the last kind of point he makes is kind of these, these kind of ancillary points at the end of the document. He kind of hand waves away the impacts on, um, on industrial development um, by sort of saying that if industry hadn't established next to railways by over the last hundred years, they were unlikely to... Uh, materialize elsewhere where there wasn't where weren't railways which is not which i is just give it's his biggest swing and a miss for the thing that he should be a specialized uh, specialist in given his previous role at ICI like he should have known that new industries were popping up away from, you know new industries in new spaces new campuses popped up um for ages and, and ages howard meow feel like i haven't read chat messages for a while no, no i can see them uh, i can see them popping up yeah uh, that was a bit of a that was a bit of a, a whoopsie i, I think uh, because yeah i suppose his logic was you know a new industry should pop up next to a railway and make the most of an existing railway but as we know that very much did not happen um and yes, so he lists off 15 steps to do the stuff that he says. And he says that um, he would return, that all of it would return British Railways to profitability by 1970, which um, it, it didn't. It didn't do that. Uh, it did not successfully do that. While we're here, does anyone want to have a look at another another map or two? Well, we've, we've got three minutes till eight o'clock. Oh, my goodness. Um, let's let's go for desk camp. So, yeah, there's, 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 there's some of the other maps. Map number one, map number two, map number three, map number four, freight stonage. Diagram showing flows of freight traffic excluding coal, favourable to rail but not on rail. This is one of the really cool maps. That is, it was a really good bit of analysis. Was okay. What road movements can we gobble up? And sure enough, you'll recognise these as being quite familiar to modern, uh, to kind of modern uh, intermodal flows. So this is some really good stuff there. Um, coal traffic not on rail is well acknowledged, which is which is an interesting one. I'm not going to. There's a little hint in the corner there of. A huge amount of that went by coastal barge still, which people often forget. Uh, de railways, depots proposed in National Sundries plan. So that's the, it, we, we talk about that in the freight episode. That's that's that one there. Um, and um, this is obviously map number nine is the one that everyone's unhappy about because it's the one that shows all the services being withdrawn. There's the northeast of Scotland being absolutely wiped out. Getting rid of stopping services on my old line. Um, they, kind of, they kind of did and kind of didn't do that, which is, anyway. Uh, 9A... Uh, the the withdrawal of passenger train services from the London area because London area, funnily enough, didn't entirely escape, uh, and, and a lot of those have been reversed because it was like orbital routes and stuff. But I, I'm not going to open that page because uh, uh, you know time is time time crunches on, my friends. Time crunches on. Uh, proposed modification of passenger train services. That's another one that people are 
grimly uh, unattracted to. And then the liner trains routes under consideration is, is a nice one because it shows those those potential routes uh, and where they run. Uh, you see not a huge amount of concentration on coastal routes. I mean, for example, uh, yeah, the Southampton's there, but they don't show the Southampton through to Oxford up the West Coast Mainline corridor, which is now one of the busiest and biggest they are. Um, is this copy of the original maps complete? I believe it is, Howard Meow. I believe it is. Uh, and then map number 12. Uh, also, there's the, a reprint of the chapter entitled Summary of the Reports. So they do publish the little summary of the report there if you wanted to just pick up the maps and pick up the maps on its own. The bus services. This is the interesting one. So, they are the bus services there. Uh, showing all the bus services, that, of which many no longer exist, uh, worryingly enough. That's a, a big flaw. And we will get to that flaw. Um, we will get to that flaw, folks. So, um, before I jump into the next bit, any, any questions going on there? Uh, I, I'm not going to. This isn't going to continue for much longer. You'll be glad to know. Uh, there's just a few, a few points, uh, points to that kind of historical points that I want to uh, draw in on. Oh, it's quite difficult to close this thing without hacking it. Uh, oh, it's because there's a rip at the back. Oh my goodness! I don't want to compound my rip further. There we are. It's in. It's safe. I've done it. Right. Um, so. Let's talk about... Oh, yeah, there's, there's a couple of other things operational legacy that I want to talk about, actually. Which One of them is um, this weird... And, and I've got it in... Actually, it's, it's, I've got the book here, which I'd strongly recommend. I'm going to go back to desk camp. The book here, which I'd strongly recommend. But this is um, British Rail Design, 1948-1997. Well worth having a look at this book by David Lawrence. Um, and it, the, the interesting point here is, um, is these brands that were kind of appearing in the very early 60s before Beeching got his teeth into it. Oh, you can see the live chat going on in the corner. Look, look it's the... It's the live chat. Look, there you all are. Hello, all of you. There you are. Um, uh, Eddie Owens asking if I dislike everyone who lives in the country. I grew up in the countryside, my friend Eddie. I just, um, I think they're an efficient use of resources um, in terms of maximizing the carbon benefits nowadays. And most people live in cities, and that's the most efficient way to move people around. Bus services work fantastically in rural areas when they're not deregulated. Anyway, that book, fantastic. The reason I bring that up is because um, these logos here uh were these weird regional logos that were being created to kind of replicate um to kind of attempt to replicate the the, the pre you know the pre-nationalization grouping uh, companies and i mean they're vi very vibesy this one here is is particularly vibesy the, the 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 classic capitals italics uh serif font that's just all over britain in that era um you know, late 50s through the 60s early 70s everything has that you know, like like uh, retirement homes and all sorts. Uh, these are horrible. I hate them. This is this is horrible. Uh, the the GWR tried tried to re recreate itself because a lot of the managers were like, no, I just want that again, and it suited the Tories. And for a while, they were going to do it. They were going to actually split the brand up. Beeching did not want that to happen because he pointed out that it was just not efficient, not sensible, and so um, so we had you know the new face of British Railways. British Rail came along, the double arrow. All the good stuff that that really pulled the railway forwards into into becoming a modern entity, um, away from that harking back to the past of the of the of the of the grouping the big four. So that for me is 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 a, is a big operational legacy that that kind of reshaping, actually kind of not entirely talked about within reshaping, but it, it's addressed by beaching around the time. So what's the overall transport legacy? Firing through. Well, firstly, the Buchanan report came out pretty much immediately after. And this has had a far more insidious impact. I've used the word insidious quite a few times in this podcast. This had a far more crippling impact on the way, on, on the shape of Britain. Because this is, the, this is the report that actually proposed 
not to do the thing that the people took the report as proposing to do. It said you might have to bulldoze loads of towns to deal with the level of traffic that's happening if you don't do something to stop traffic. And then what government did was bulldoze the centre of a load of towns to try and allow more traffic to move around. Uh, That's a a yelp and a whoops right there. Um, So, yeah, the Buchanan report... But no one remembers the Buchanan report. I mean, okay, weird nerds like like us remember the Buchanan report. No one remembers the Buchanan report. Whereas pretty much everyone, if you say, "Do you know? Do you know what beaching is?" They're probably going to know what beaching is, right? So, um, yeah, it's a it's a. So this this came out pretty rapidly and resulted in a lot of mess being made across the country, particularly in urban areas. And um, then rapidly after that, that was sixty three, sixty four. There was a general election and Labour returned. Um, uh, first in minority and then later in a majority government. Um, and so that was 64. 65, Beeching published his second report, often uh, falsely interpreted as being um, a, a a further curtailing of the size of the network. Wrong. It was just talking about developing those trunk routes that, that Beeching had identified as being uh, strong for growing revenue. It was talking about developing those, enhancing them, electrifying them, improving them. Uh, where reshaping didn't talk about electrification at all, really. It mentions it once and not really about um, uh, saying that it should be a thing that happens. 1966 also, so that was 1965. After that, Beeching was gone. And a reminder when I talk about modernisation continuing, because Beeching went and uh, London Middle Electrification launched properly. April 1966, you had electric services running up the up the, the, the West Coast Main Line. I'm trying to remember what's Britain and what's Amphitross here, for those of you who watch my engineer, an engineer play series. April 1966, uh, the West Coast Main Line, you know, we started seeing express services that were electrically old and, 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 and suburban services were electrically old. Suddenly, this, this is what started really turning around British Rail's fortunes, this sort of approach to actual modernisation. Um, so then that was so that happened that was April of 66 in July 66 uh, Barbara Castle the new um secretary of state or sorry the new minister of transport at the time wasn't secretary of state it was the minister of transport um, commissioned a white paper generically called transport policy which in turn fed into well it fed into a couple of things it fed into um a new document which was the British Railways network for development which uh, basically just said yeah we're still doing beaching we're still doing, as, 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 as people often call it, but we are still doing cuts to the rail network. In fact, it proposed additional cuts. There were some alterations to what was proposed, but actually it proposed a, continue, a, a continued curtailment of the size of the rail network. Um, and, you, know, you can see Settle Carlisle line as, a, as a, an obvious uh, gap there. And then the other, of course, is, is um, uh, Waverley Route. You see Welsh, uh, the, the Heart of Wales line there being uh, snipped off. Lots of things that, that were still being uh, slashed up that... Uh, it with the Bethany Islands, also the Cambrian coastline there uh, gone. So lots of things that, all, that that were proposed for being slashed up. So you know the idea that we say beaching cuts really winds me up, uh, and we'll get to why I think that winds me up momentarily. But so that white paper, um, uh, the, the, the this white paper, the Transport Policy White Paper, also led then to the Transport Act 1968, which had lots of good stuff in it. it had the creation of the passenger transport areas, so essentially devolving power to to cities, which is a good thing. Um, it had um. The regular, the heavily regular, heavy regulation of buses. It had the the establishment and general creation of the National Freight Corporation, but it also created kind of uh, basically nationalised all buses, which is very good. Transferred um, the 
companies into becoming um, nationalized bus companies, uh, created the National Bus Company. Uh, more of that in episode 157, that where we uh, we talked about this with Martha Lorne. And the rest is happy. Everything after that worked well. Transport integration continued to happen and definitely was not fairly rapidly dismantled by a callous conservative government. Anyway, um, let's, let's very briefly talk about trends. So the uh, yeah, so you see here we've got. Um, here's here is the arrival of, of reshaping uh, in yellow here and you can see that there is this kind of daily distance travel per capita by the average punter so that's per person how much how many kilometers people kind of traveled um and and the green one there is how many passengers there were per kilometer of railway network um in the in the thousands so so you can see this has kind of been pretty level and then from the point of reshaping onwards it it's climbed and it's basically continued to climb non-stop as we've had a busier rail network more passengers being traveled uh, being carried on a on a smaller rail network and uh, and the daily distance traveled well it, it kind of the slowing the reduction of this kind of was arrested by the 1970s and it kind of stayed flat through to well actually no through it kind of stayed flat through to the early 1980s at which point it started climbing because by that point BR had really got its shit together essentially to put not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, things really started working at that point uh, until the early nineties recession, which hit hard and everything went to hell. And then you got the climb again um, from the, the kind of the mid nineties onwards. Nothing to do with privatization. So uh, and then the other graph, which is a, a kind of a similar one, it's just showing kind of uh, those bumps. By the way, in in daily distance travel, they're all basically related to to GDP. They're all related to to economics you know economic things happening so um yeah that's it's always worth saying another point i want to point out is that by by the mid 90s the mid 90s there we are uh, by the mid 90s uh roads modal share had peaked it peaked in what 94 95 and and has been dropping since i i fear that it might have pe- climbed again in in recent years but it has been dropping since and um, rails modal share climbing since that point so it's rail hot clock getting all that um, you know, getting people back out of cars and into trains is, is accounted for that um, drop in, in roads modal shift. So that's a success and we should continue. Your know, rail can pull people out of cars like nothing else can, which is why I don't entirely dismiss the value of rail um, in, in rural areas. Um, uh, but the way that rural services were run in, in the 60s does not map well onto how rural services can be run today. Very different type of service. Um, and yes, there's all this stuff about the fact the infrastructure should have been, you know, mothballed or, or, or the tracks ripped up and the asset basically left there and protected. Yes, all those sorts of things are, are absolutely valid, but not for the discussion this time. However, let's briefly talk about the network legacy because here again is um, is passenger density. Uh, here's network length. Um, the thing I want to talk about is is the numbers. So these these are uh, these numbers here are kilometers. They're actually route kilometers. They're route route kilometers, and and the peak network according to the official data is was uh, 32 and a half thousand kilometers in 1928 by 1963 there had been already been a 16 percent reduction so then from 63 to 66 which is the reshaping era this is reshaping this to all intents and purposes this is you cannot call anything after 66 reshaping really so there was a 24 percent reduction a quarter reduction of the network over that period so that's a sizable ch- chunk you know about 5,000 route kilometers dropped and then again, from that point onwards, there's another 4,000 or so, or sorry, 3,000 or so kilometers dropped up to 1970, which is when you'd kind of say the contraction of the network really slowed and stopped. Those are Castle era. They are Castle era. Those cannot be called reshaping cuts. They don't, they aren't. Reshaping had been ripped in half by that point. 
you know, so by that point, there was a new government, new leadership, new intentions. Uh, oh, people are asking how much of that uh, three thousand, uh, thirty thousand was 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 four track. Well, funnily enough, if we go to uh, get, get the old desk cam up, well, you can go to the tables here where that's freight. Keep going. There's a table here which describes precisely those numbers. Here we are. Uh, this is the data you want. Page uh, nine of uh, of reshaping, and it tells you exactly how much was split across the different routes. Um, how many were, uh, particularly the this table here, table, it doesn't have a number, fine. Uh, yeah, so um, quite, most of that was double track. Uh, about uh, quite a small fraction of it was um, uh, single track. This is miles, of course, there, by the way, that's route miles. I was talking about kilometers, but um, anyway, so it's all in there. It's all in there. Um, electrification. I want to talk about electrification very, very, very briefly because it doesn't talk about reshaping and I think it was a gap. It was an opportunity to talk about the benefits that electrification could bring wasn't taken. It was talked about a bit in, in the trunk routes, but even then it's about consolidation and enhancement rather than a um, specifics. So, and the, the legacy, the long-term legacy in terms of the shape of the network is that the lack of suburban, the, the removal of routes in suburban areas particularly was a was a massive failure because it means that we have had to do excruciating enhancement work in city centres that, that we could have avoided had we had more duplication in, in our major centres outside of London. And ultimately, it's led us to need to do high-speed lines um, more desperately, perhaps, than we might otherwise have required. We might have been able to do more patchwork high-speed stuff instead of a new, entirely new high-speed route had Beeching um, not uh, proposed the closures um, uh, propose the contractors of, uh, particularly in, in of, of, of city connection uh, city routes through into cities um, the other thing is a failure of, of beaching was to not propose new connections and and, and and replotting of routes rather than just continuing the legacy of the former main lines you know the former mainline companies the former main lines of the of the, of the other of the of the big four as we talked about in, in that previous episode about the network so that's that's the legacy I think of that. But but what about you know was it a success? Was it a failure? Was reshaping a success or a failure? Well, um, these two here, modernization and reshaping, by the measure of getting a surplus by a certain date, they both failed. But I think both of them did not fail when it comes to you know the the, the, the legacy is much more complex when you look at how it's actually led to giving us the railway we have today for better or worse. You know the better parts of it, not just the bad bad parts, but the better parts, intermodal. Uh, enhancing, you know, intercity services, you know, intercity network very much came out of reshaping. Um, electrification continued through, and, and you could say that legacy of electrification through to, the, through to 74 certainly is a modern, modernization, arguably right up until 74, uh, with other stuff going on elsewhere. And actually, we continued electrifying after 74. We did continue doing other electrification around the country as well. Um, and you might say, you know, and I'm going to close out by saying, well, was Marples the big baddie? Um, Actually, even Marples is not the bad. Yes, this he very much was corrupt, and and uh, he did own Ridgeway Marples that built a lot of motorways, um, and and he ended up being absolutely corrupt and had to flee the country. But um, <laughs> it's more complicated than that. Uh, look up Doctor DT's thread on the subject. Oh, and to that because I want to close imminently and rapidly and as quickly as possible. I'm gonna get rid of my face and say, um, uh, store up your questions for the end uh, audio only listeners thanks for listening uh, we, we broke 50 with 56 57,000 listeners in podcast only form so thanks very much to you uh, leave a like and a review and all the things that you're supposed to um, patreon.com slash Gareth Dennis for um, 
to support more of this happening, paypal.me slash garethetis for loose change. I stuttered my way through that. And garethetis.co.uk slash discord for the discord. Oh. So, uh, there's a gap here, though, which is, of course, because... <laughs> is back people the merch is back um and um yes yeah, so uh slash merch to get merchandise which includes um well okay here is yeah here's the, the, the this is the web this is the merch site so there's all sorts in there there's all sorts of fun stuff for you to get um a sample of which includes um the 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 not a metro sorter is on clothes you can wear the not a metro sorter on your body uh, also, this thing, uh, a bunch of t-shirts saying, a very simple message, build HS2 now. Just have that as a t-shirt and wear it in public. Um, what else? Oh, uh, you can buy a hoodie with the Kant equation on it. Why not? You can do it. And also uh, a bunch of t-shirts with um, trans support, transport, trans support, and, and then a um, possibly may or may not work in print um lgbtq plus version of the real matter logo um uh with, of which proceeds the profits of those which are slim but nonetheless exist the profits of those uh sales the, the transport um uh clothes uh, will all go to lgbt forum york lgbt forum so that's nice uh and of course there are quite a few mugs on the go as well not just this classic which uh, has had the wording slightly changed so it's a little different to the first generation abolish the treasury mugs but we must abolish the treasury those mugs available but also you can get mugs with um you can get mugs with uh the with with this you can get mugs with the cant equation uh and all suggestions welcome in the discord server um absolutely go in and have some fun with that and and propose some stuff also, uh, sadly, I can't do this one. This was an idea of mine, but because the roundel is very heavily protected, I think I'd get sued if I did this one. Uh, I've travelled on Thameslink 2 there, of course. Would be a, a fun t-shirt, I think. And, um, yes, so as I say, reiterate, garethenstock.uk slash merch um, to go into Teespring and buy things uh, to wear for fun. Why not? Uh, as I say, suggestions. Uh, very much welcome. Oh, and... As a tease, there are a couple of other little cheeky things in there. Like, if you're a fan of the engineer, an Engineer Plays series, then uh, you can wear a T-shirt that says, I've, I've visited the Amphitros Social Republic. And you can just get a mug that has the very cool socialist crest of Amphitros on it, uh, which I like um, very much because I'm a nerd. Uh, so you can go and get those things. Talking of Amphitros, um, Relevant will be the next episode. I don't know when it's going to be. It's still probably a while away. But um, episode 70, The Reshaping of Amphitros's Railways, is the next episode topically enough. So very much picking up on what we've covered in today's episode. Next week, episode 161, the five ways that High Speed 2 should have been better. Um, it's, uh, yeah, there we go. Um, episode 161, we're going to talk, we're going to look at the High Speed 2 map, and we're going to talk about things that it should should have improved. Uh, that five might change to six or four. I'm not sure. I've not listed them off yet. Anyway, um, so there you are. All the good stuff. Um, yeah, do suggest merch that you want to get. Uh, let's go through a couple of questions very briefly for like two minutes. I'm 18 minutes late and I really want to keep this to an hour because I have a baby downstairs and a wife who needs my help. Martha Lawrence says, thing with regional transport is replacing some lines with decent bus service would have been a half-decent idea if, if it actually happened. Correct. And if we've got the integrated regional transport authorities. Correct. Yes. Um, uh, precisely so. Uh, fully agree. Um, uh, da -da -da. Campaign for Northeast Rail. Why was track lifted and not just sold off and mothballed? Surely that cost more. Yes. Uh, agreed. They should have just left it as it was and protect it. Um, uh, the hat brush, that horn is never clever. Uh, I'm sorry you don't like it. Uh, it's fun. Um, uh, there we are. Actually, it's not the Socialist Republic of Bulgaria's arms, that one, actually. 
Uh, Gareth, no. Um, uh, interesting. Spoiler alert uh, for those who watch the series. Anyway, uh, actually, I don't see any other questions. Um, a few other points there. You know what? I'm going to draw, draw a line under that, actually. Um, everyone, uh, thanks for that. I'm, I'm late to go downstairs and, and see uh, and see my uh, darling wife and, and little baby uh, wee one. So I'm going to wave vigorously um, and say, it's been fun. Uh, Deskcam says uh, hello. Uh, look, bye, bye, everyone from Deskcam. Um, bye, uh, and I will see you. <laughs> also, yeah, look, there's the, the 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 original Phase One first generation merch, which is no longer available and now is very valuable and, and, and exclusive to get. Right, I'm waving. Everyone, it's been a pleasure. Cheerio. Oh no, it's still me. I'm still here. I just didn't do the thing that I meant to do, which is click. Uh, which is click. Wait for it. Ever professional. <laughs> so many clicks today. Right. Bye, everyone. Bye, bye, bye. Bye, 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 bye. Cheerio.